This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. As I was growing up here in Philadelphia, my dad worked for Philadelphia Electric Company. He worked for them for more than 30 years. They took care of him and provided him with a pension that my mom still has at her disposal today. But that story is more than the exception rather than the rule these days. The change in mindset by many companies on retirement, healthcare, and and more has created a breakdown in the relationship between employee and employer at times. That problem and more are discussed in the new book, The End of Loyalty, written by Rick Wartzman, who's a senior advisor at the Drucker Institute. He's also written for a wide range of publications like Time, Forbes, Business Week, and others. And Rick joins us to take a look at his book and the state of jobs here in the United States right now. Rick, welcome. Hey, thanks so much. Thank you. We see these patterns going on right now. So, do you expect that that this relationship between employee and employer is going to continue to have this divide in it right now? Well, I think there are a lot of pressures that we've seen actually building over the last 30, 40 years, and um, I don't see them abating anytime soon. Um, everything from the pressures of automation and technology, globalization, the decline of unions, we now have less than 7% of uh, the private sector workforce in America uh, that is part of organized labor, uh, which served as a kind of great counterbalance to corporate power uh, through the you know, 40s and 50s and 60s. Um, that's no longer there. Um, and also this incredible pressure to maximize shareholder value, pressure from Wall Street that has explicitly put stockholders uh, above all other stakeholders, including workers. So I, I don't see any of that changing anytime soon, unfortunately. So when did the shift really kind of kick into gear? Well, it's interesting. I mean, you, you can see it really kick into gear uh, in the 70s, um, sort of early to mid-70s. There were some uh, big shocks to the U.S. economy that exposed a lot of fundamental weakness that had built up uh, in previous decades. Uh, And that left a lot of companies scrambling and, uh, in turn, uh, left their workers in a a much worse off place. And a lot of the uh, sort of downsizing uh, that followed, uh, those things never have reversed themselves. And so uh, that was the big shock. What what surprised me in doing the research in my book and um, my my narrative arc goes from uh, the end of World War II up until today, was how these pressures actually started building much earlier than I imagined, even while the social contract, as I describe it, job security, pay, health care benefits provided by companies, good pensions, as you you mentioned, your mom is still benefiting from. um, Those things were still sort of improving and, and on the upswing through the 50s and 60s. But by the late 50s, the early seeds of the unraveling of the social contract were already being planted. So is is it partly also that as the generations have kind of developed, the expectations were different as well? I think very much. One of the, one of the other things that really jumped out at me in, in doing the research was how much cultural norms have shifted in America and in turn how much corporate cultural norms have, have shifted um, I think corporate culture kind of, you know, is, is a reflection of our, our national culture and, and societal norms. Right. And so you had a generation that came through the Great Depression and World War II, and there was definitely much more of a, of a we mindset. We're all in this together. 
And I think there's much more of an individualistic I mindset that, again, began to set in by the you know 70s, 80s, and prevails today. And uh, that's certainly part of what's going on here. So then if you look at the recent history, something like the recession that we just went through uh, a little less than a decade ago, right. what what impact has did that event and all of the turmoil that was surrounding it play on the narrative that you're bringing forward in the book? Well, again, it, it, it sort of exacerbated um, a lot of the, the anxiety that workers had. Um, one of the phenomena that we have seen is that um, uh, for the last three recessions, you've had this phenomenon of, of the so-called jobless recovery. Right. And so what used to happen um, is that uh, there were obviously economic ups and downs, normal fluctuations in the business cycle. And when businesses would lay people off, they would lay them off and then typically bring them back, bring many of them back to their factory jobs, say, uh, when business recovered. In fact, it wasn't until the mid-'80s that the Labor Department uh, began to even track what it called displaced workers. Um, And so uh, that was a relative – it's been a relatively new phenomenon. And what's happened now is, uh, you know, beginning in the 80s, you, you began to see massive downsizing. That really picked up in the 90s. And then each recession becomes, uh, you know, it's not, not something where employers are looking to bring folks back after the economy recovers. They restructure in the interim and realize we can do more with fewer hands and uh, those jobs often never come back. So uh, is it then the goal now of both business and the government to try and find a way to avoid recession, which is that's a that's a big animal to try and tackle right now, because if you have kind of this rebalancing every time you have a recession, if you could find a way and be more responsible, whether it be the the, the company, the government, whatever it might be, maybe we're we're able to eliminate it or alleviate it just a little bit. Yeah, maybe. I'm not an economist, and yeah. uh, I'd leave that to, you know, brighter minds at Wharton and elsewhere. Right. What I can tell you as a historian is there have been uh, uh, times where uh, people in Washington particularly think that they've licked the business cycle. They've right. figured out how to conquer recession and that they can essentially, through the levers of fiscal and monetary policy, uh, make it so that uh, recession won't ever come again. And it always comes again, or at least right. it always has come again. Right. So I'm skeptical that we'll ever be able to uh, to reverse that. Um, uh, history just suggests otherwise. You look at, at the, these issues surrounding the labor force and, and jobs through the eyes of, of four pretty well-known legacy brands over the yeah. over the last 70 years, GM, GE, Kodak, and Coke. Why specifically those four? So I, I picked those four companies for a couple of reasons. One is my book starts uh, in 1943, shortly after the founding of an organization called the Committee for Economic Development. The CED is still around today. It's part of the conference board now. Right. But it was a leading business voice, along with the National Association of Manufacturers and the U.S. Chamber of Commerce back in the 1940s. But it was a much more moderate voice uh, in terms of uh, its politics, in terms of its uh, ideological orientation than some of the other more hardline business groups. Um, And it really, at the end of World War II, the leaders of the CED 
set out a vision for what America should look like in the post-war economy and society. And those four companies that you mentioned, GE, GM, Kodak, and Coke, were all instrumental in the founding of the CED. So just as a narrative device, it was a great place to begin. And these titans of industry who led the companies back then, you know, I, I have them begin the book and lay out their vision for what America should look like. Well, and I wanted to go through each one of them for a couple of minutes, and I'll start mm-hmm. with Kodak, because sure. Kodak's an interesting one, because if you go back 40, 50 years, it was as powerful and strong a company as there was here in the United States. Absolutely. And obviously, their attempt to try and transition to the digital economy failed and failed miserably. So is that the biggest element that really impacted Kodak? It was ultimately. I mean, you know, as a lot of uh, your listeners probably know, Kodak is credited with inventing the digital camera, but yeah. could never quite wean itself off of film. And yeah. I talked to a number of former executives there who, you know, said that uh, the fat profit margins of film was just uh, was like a narcotic. I mean, they just couldn't wean themselves off it, and uh, never really managed to make that transition successfully. That the Money was just too much coming in from film while they had that business um, until it was no more. And, and suddenly they looked up and it was no more. So that was obviously a huge factor. Historically, the interesting thing about Kodak, and, and I thought the company you know, took us to some really interesting places, takes the reader to some really interesting places, is that it's one of the companies that was never unionized. Um, right. They practice what was termed welfare capitalism. And their notion was to lavish uh, great pay and great perks on their employees, on their very large workforce at the time. Mm-hmm. Um, and this was done with a variety of, of kind of impulses in mind. Um, one was because there really was this ethic that I described earlier where uh, employers wanted to give more to their employees. They felt a measure of loyalty to them and expected loyalty in return. Right. And... Uh, there was also, though, very much in Kodak's case, an attempt to keep unions at bay, and they wanted to do this by uh, making so that there was no need for a union. We pay our people great, and we give them great benefits. Who needs these organized labor, you know, folks around? So, give us the story from the from the Coca-Cola perspective. Coke's interesting, um, you know, at headquarters in Atlanta. I mean, it's ex- it's essentially a a giant advertising agency, branding firm. Yeah. Uh, in terms of workers, the real action occurs at the bottling plant level. And um, there there has been uh, union activity over the years, mostly with the Teamsters. I use Coke, uh, kind of the, the real pivot point in the book for Coca-Cola comes under the leadership of Roberto Goizueta, uh, who ran the company from about 1980 to uh, uh, the late 90s when he died, and um, was a hailed as a great CEO and certainly did an incredible amount to uh, lift the value of Coca-Cola's share price. Um, but I use him as a, as a way to focus on this pivot, which again I see as really key in this whole story, mm-hmm. to how we have gone to put maximizing shareholder value above all else, including maximizing investment in our workforce. 
We're joined uh, on the phone by uh, Rick Wartsman, who is the author of the book, The End of Loyalty, uh, which is available in bookstores and online. The End of Loyalty, The Rise and Fall of Good Jobs in America. Your comments are welcome at 844-WHARTON. 844-942-7866 is the number to give us a call. GM was it has been and still is today one of the legacy brands in this country, even though it went through all the issues that it went through uh, over the last few years, through the recession and, and then the ignition switch recall. G- give us the perspective of GM in this. Sure. So uh, GM, I mean, in some ways was really the paradynamic American company and the world leader um, uh, as a corporation for a long time, uh, certainly through the 20th century. And, um, you know, it, it had incredible benefits. It had incredible pay, largely uh, at the frontline level through the power of the United Auto Workers. Yep. And so I really use them to talk about uh, the importance of unions, of organized labor, in the rise of the social contract uh, between employer and employee. And it's important to note not only at companies like GM that were heavily unionized, but when the American workforce was uh, 25, 30, 35 percent uh, unionized in the private sector, and again, we're at less than 7 percent now, when you got up to those bigger numbers, uh, there was a tremendous spillover effect. So it wasn't only unionized workers who benefited, but it was also uh, workers at companies that weren't organized um, and white-collar labor as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, were all lifted up by the tremendous power and this collective voice and countervailing force to corporate power that unions have. It almost makes you uh, wonder if the auto industry is going to be really the last of the unionized industries here in the United States. Yes, absolutely. Although there have been big shifts, certainly at GM and and elsewhere. Um, They moved to a two-tier wage structure. um, uh, And so what you had there was even unionized workers at GM found themselves in a position that they had never been in before, which is that even you know, full-time auto workers were in some cases struggling to make ends meet. Those used to be tremendous jobs, and they still are relatively good jobs compared to many in the service sector, right. but they certainly you know, aren't the jobs that they once were. Should, should General Motors, uh, of outside of Kodak, should General Motors, as one of the other three, take the most a uh, strong view of what happened to Kodak in terms of the shift that they couldn't make to the digital world and, and really take it to heart, considering the fact that the auto industry, it, it, there is an element of it that, that is automated right now, and seemingly the opportunity for it to be more and more automated uh, through robotics and, and such, uh, the, you know, that, that is the opportunity to grow as much as anything with the auto industry in the future. Absolutely. I mean, certainly, uh, you know, GM, like, you know, most major companies has certainly done done a lot to automate over the years, and, yeah. and its workforce has shrank considerably. Um, I mean, you know, it once had, you know, 700,000 employees. It was a giant, giant, giant company. Uh, it is a small fraction of that today in terms of its employment. And um, that's for a variety of reasons, including all the financial troubles it had, but certainly yeah. automation is a big piece of that. And that was already happening, you know, well before its bankruptcy. Um, where I think GM, you, you are seeing a shift. If, if you talk to executives there now, they would they would describe themselves as a mobility company. Um, Ford does this too, of course, yeah. and they just had a shake up there in this regard. But uh, GM would say we're a mobility company, and they're certainly looking to autonomous vehicles, for example, 
um, as a big part of uh, their future, I think. I, I believe they own a chunk of Lyft now. And uh, so they're, you know, they're trying to uh, move with the times. And you know, what's, what's, I think, really interesting, I looked at all four of these companies, took a deep dive over this long 70-, 75-year historical arc. And you had two of them that have done you know, quite well over a long period of time, some ups and downs, but quite well in Coca-Cola and General Electric. Yeah. And you had two that you know, out and out struggled, right, Kodak and GM although GM has come back some. And uh, if you look at them, it doesn't matter whether they were the you know, huge successes over this time in GE and Coke or the ones that really hit hard times and hit bankruptcy in terms of Kodak and GM. The story for their workforce is pretty much the same. It, it doesn't matter whether they were you know, riding high or, or riding low. Well, and, and GE is the last one of this component that, uh, that we'll bring up. I mean, talk about a shift. I mean, they from going from a company that had such a big retail element in terms of lighting and such, and to basically divorce themselves of that and truly look at energy and, and other opportunities. I mean, that's, that's as big a shift as, as any of these companies have made. Absolutely. I mean, the company, you know, one of the things I actually greatly admire about GE is its ability to reinvent itself uh, over a long period of time. And it seems like every leader has, every CEO has been able to, to do a really excellent job of this. Um, you know, some have pushed in on it harder than others in terms of uh, disrupting themselves. Um, but certainly Jeff Immelt at this point is doing a lot in that regard in terms of becoming much more of a digital company yeah. uh, centered around the Internet of Things. And, uh, uh, you know, he's clearly an admirer of what's going on in Silicon Valley and has actually based a bunch of operations there to, uh, to draw on digital technology and be part of that world. You have to admire them for that. What GE represents in the book in a lot of ways, though, is, is another shift. And that is, you know, they have more workers abroad now than they do in the U.S. Right, right. And so, yeah. again, this is another one of these big shifts. And I should say, I, I'm not condemning these companies for, for any of this. It makes sense why GE is serving so many people abroad. That's where its customers are. It isn't going there in most cases just to chase cheap labor. It's going there because that's where its markets are. And so I, I, I totally get that. I'm not saying we shouldn't automate or advance technology. That's how we move forward as a society. It's how we increase productivity, which is a key to raising living standards over time for everybody. So these big forces, um, you know, I'm not, I'm not uh, saying that they're the wrong direction to move in, right. but there is a cost that, that comes with it, and we've certainly seen that in terms of uh, the rising anxiety and anger of a lot of working folks. You mentioned Jeff Immelt. I want to mention the, the, one of the men before him, uh, Jack Welch, and the the role that he played in this process in your mind. Well, he was a huge figure um, in this kind of national narrative, and yep. I got to spend some time with uh, with Jack Welch, which was uh, quite a treat. And um, uh, you know, he he was the one who really shook up kind of a hidebound bureaucratic General Electric, and he made it much more nimble. And there were some great things that came with that. He really empowered workers, including those down on the front lines, to uh, offer up their ideas and to uh, make it. May, he made GE much more a meritocracy, um, and that was terrific. Um, he also shed a lot of bodies in the process. Yeah. By one count, as many as 170,000 jobs were lost under his uh, 
time as, as GE's leader, and uh, you know that earned him the moniker Neutron Jack, right? Yep. yep. Supposedly, uh, just the buildings were left standing after he was done. <laughs> well, let, let me ask you this then: in general, when you think about the relationship between employee and employer. Are the employees much more savvy uh, of watching out for the potential pitfalls than they were, say, 30 or 40 years ago? I'm sorry, are they much more savvy, did you say? Savvy, like understanding when when the trouble is is kind of looming and, and understanding that maybe it's time to get out and maybe it's it's time to move on to the next uh, to the next company. I think there's a deep split on that question. So one of the other things that you've seen in the big trends over this 70-year arc is that we have moved very steadily from a uh, blue-collar world, and even though only about 30% of the U.S. workforce was, you know, had factory or sort of blue-collar jobs, um, uh, even back in the 50s, it was still, uh, that was kind of the, the, the ethos, if you will, in America. We were oriented in that direction. It was a big part of the culture. And the, the magic of those jobs for folks was that you could get one of those jobs and have a path to the middle class with relatively little education and really few skills. Right. That yeah. doesn't work anymore. So this, we have moved from a uh, blue-collar society to a knowledge society, a knowledge economy. And so we have this incredible divide. If you go to school, if you uh, get a degree, uh, chances are you're going to be okay. And there's a lot of questions now about whether a college degree pays off and a lot of young people are carrying a lot of debt. And those are real issues. But by and large, all the evidence shows that if you're college educated, you're going to do fine in, in this knowledge economy. But you have to remember that more than half of adults in America don't have any post-secondary degree, not a college degree, not a community college degree, right. not a technical you know, certificate of any kind. And the real question is, what happens to them? What do they do in this knowledge economy? And I don't see that they have many choices. I don't think they can say, well, my factory's about to close. I'm going to move over here. Right. Move over where? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, they're, they're against the wall. Rick, it's a great book. Thank you very much for giving us your time today. Greatly appreciate it. Absolutely enjoyed it. All the best. Rick Wurtzman. Uh, the book is The End of Loyalty, The Rise and Fall of Good Jobs in America. It is available in bookstores and available online right now. For more insight from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu.